for tuning into Power Athlete Radio. Sleep, it's a beautiful thing where recovery occurs and dreams are made, literally. We all know how amazing we feel after a good night's sleep, but what are the creeping implications of years of mediocre sleep? Sherry Ma works with professional athletes whose livelihood depends on recovery, but with so many external variables like demanding travel schedules, time zone changes, and injuries, how does she ensure that these phenoms are truly optimizing their sleep? Hear how she's created a priority system that will enable even the common man to steadily increase their quality of sleep. And for my shift working peeps out there, don't worry, Ma gives you tools to create the perfect winding down routine. Not only has Sherry's expertise predicted season win and loss trends, but it's also been instrumental in the individual successes of numerous pro performers. This is episode 207. Power Athlete Nation. Oh, Tex, come on. Pump it up a little bit more. Let's get a little more energy in this one. I'm not the energy guy. Oh, I know. You are the even keel. So when we say, hey, Power Athlete Radio, welcome to another episode of... The premier Beer podcast in strength and, and conditioning. conditioning. We've been practicing. Yeah, we have. Uh, so very excited. I first spoke with our guest uh, maybe May 2016 when I, I stepped into one of her presentations at the CSCCA conference. Ever since then, uh, she's been all over the globe talking to people, teaching and researching. So I'm very excited to be able to connect with her today. Uh, so our guest here is Sherry Moss. She's a researcher at the University of California, San Francisco, at the Human Performance Center. So I know I won't do your work justice, Sherry. Go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners, what you've been, kind of your goal, your mission with all of your research, and then how you hope to really change the face of performance. Sure. Well, thanks for having me on today. Um, so really, my the focus of my research is looking at how sleep impacts performance in elite athletes and diving into not just what happens when we get inadequate rest, but I've been most fascinated with how we can improve sleep and improve recovery to ultimately impact positively performance in elite athletes. And so you, you started researching at Stanford. And if I recall correctly, you were learning and working on circadian rhythms when did the shift happen for sports performance versus just sleep? Sure. I started at Stanford ooh, about 14 years ago, a uh, curious Stanford undergrad, and that's when I was doing um, education and some sleep research. And then it was really during my master's and then kind of the postgraduate years that I started focusing on, focusing on sleep in elite athletes because we had access to phenomenal athletes at Stanford. Um, and it was one of the first studies that I was really involved in early on that by chance had some Stanford swimmers in it. And they, you know, came into the lab one day and said, hey, Sherry, we know you're looking at cognitive performance. I just let you, want to let you know I set a couple personal records in my last swim meet. And that's sort of when the light bulb went off in my head that, hey, we might see particular benefits um, in elite athletes if we focus on this population. So that's really what sort of led me down this path of starting to focus on cognitive performance, on-field performance, and now at UCSF physiology and so the biomechanics of these different domains that ultimately are all going to contribute to athlete performance. So sleep seems pretty intuitive, right? We get more, we perform better. So, what do you mean the age old, um, I'll get enough sleep when I die is kind of dead. No, that's, that's your motto. You know what, when I was younger, and I'm sure Sherry can chime in on this as a, uh, you know, obviously uh, soon to be doctor and a young undergrad in a competitive place. Uh, you know, when I was in college, I'm sure like, I don't know, maybe one or two of you listening to this, 
uh, Berkeley, Stanford competitive places, um, not only playing sports, to trying to take a full class load and trying to graduate in time. I mean, uh, sleep was like the uh, just constantly got cut shorter and shorter. And it wasn't until I think I got a little bit older into my you know couple years in the NFL that I started realizing I needed to sleep because in my 20s, I mean, I could probably go on like one or two hours and be fine. And now as a you know, dad of three and over, you know, at 40, I'm, I, you give me two hours of sleep and I'm screwed for like a week. And, uh, I found it interesting in your presentation, you talked about the West coast versus East coast 40 year football story. So I kind of wanted to get John's take on this. And, um, so if you, can you introduce that study to us and then let's see if John has an experience as he was an East coast athlete. Sure. So this was a study that was sort of an extension of the first one. So if you've heard of the Monday Night Football study, basically I looked at 25 seasons from 1979 to 95 and demonstrated that there's a significant advantage to the West Coast teams because of the body clock. So regardless of whether you're playing the East Coast or the West Coast, when you have the night matchups between East Coast and West Coast teams over those 25 seasons, if you simply bet on the West Coast team and beat the, the Vegas point spread about 68% of the time. Um, and the reason why is because of that body clock advantage to the West Coast team. Um, then what we did is uh, we added on additional years, so another about 15 years. So now we have 1970 to 2011. Um, and comparing again those East Coast, West Coast matchups versus the day games and also strengthen those findings that yes there's a body clock advantage to the west coast teams um demonstrating about you know a two-fold increase in um the west coast teams being the point spread compared to the east coast team so why is that is it i mean i guess uh, most games are played at what i'm thinking on what monday nights eight o'clock uh eastern time Right. So this was specifically the, the night games, correct? Yeah. So, so for the night games saying that like, if you're a West coast team, that's your body clock is uh, five o'clock. So therefore you're, you know, not nearly as tired, I guess, going into, you know, regardless of what the time says on the, uh, on the clock for the West coast team playing on the East coast. Right. So there's two things going on. One is that there is this later afternoon to early evening um, time of day where performance is enhanced. So there's, that's one factor. And then the second factor is that the West Coast body clock is operating closer to that special window compared to the East Coast team. So regardless, if you're playing on either coast, it's that difference in that body clock that was suggestive, maybe contributing to the outcomes that we've seen over those 40 years. They found that, um, I remember reading a study years ago, them talking about performance in the weight room in terms of strength gains, uh, that athletes were more efficient later in the day and were stronger. So, I mean, there was an, and I remember the uh, old powerlifter we trained with talked about uh, in the morning, the mind is willing, but the body is not later in the day when you're more mentally having dealt with, uh, you know, more bullshit during the day, but yet the body is more primed and actually better to train later, uh, later in the day towards the evening. So maybe there's something to it. Um, you know what? I never really worried much about it. Uh, I, I just know that for the games where we were, you know, when I played in Philadelphia, we flew back and played um, games on the West Coast, you know, when obviously it would probably be like, you know, a five o'clock afternoon or even, you know, 4.30 game. I always knew that those were pretty nice because there was sunshine. And, you know, whenever we played any of the, the East Coast Monday night games, it was always so dark. So I always thought there was something to maybe daylight or night games so but i believe it now if, if i ever bet it on 
on football, I'm totally taking that bet. <laughs> I, I used to play for a guy named Dick Vermeil, and Dick Vermeil had some weird statistician locked away that he would only wheel out once a week who would come in and give us all these amazing facts, like teams that are up by, you know, one touchdown at home that win the coin toss going into the third quarter win 67% of the time. Uh, teams that like give up. I mean, so he had all these numbers and he was fascinated by them. All they ever did was uh, we, we remembered them. And then if those things ever happened, people would just throw the bag in. Like, oh, we're going to lose. So I always think for uh, some of those studies, maybe they're, once they, once they become put out there, they become um, self-fulfilling prophecies. Sherry, have you experienced that with an athlete or they were forced because of school or just circumstance uh, to only get four or five hours of sleep and then they have to compete? Yeah, that happens all the time. I mean, I do work with with athletes across all four leagues, NBA, NFL, NHL, Major League Baseball, and obviously schedules are a little bit different in each of those leagues, but there's plenty of circumstances because of the travel schedule or what that looks like um, with the game schedule and having to, you know, catch different flights that oftentimes sleep loss is very common and athletes do often have to perform still at a high level on an adequate rest. Um, that looks different, I think, yeah, in, in the different sports, but it is definitely a, a very frequent challenge. Is there um, any way to like mitigate it? I mean, if, if you're um, an athlete and you potentially might only have a four or five hour sleep, I mean, is there something, um, you know, like naps or something that people are able to do meditation? I mean, is there any way to offset? I mean, I, um, the theme of this podcast is kind of battle the bullshit and there's no more bullshit out there than people trying to hack sleep. And anybody that uses the term hack instantly, like every hair on my body stands up and instantly whatever comes out of their mouth next is bullshit. Well, they're a hack that makes them hack. <sighs> no, it's just like, Oh, you know, like, uh, you know, and, and I'm sure you've seen it. Like everybody in Silicon Valley is finding some way, you know, in the, um, who is it? The bulletproof coffee. Dave Asprey guy is like the king of, I don't work out. I just have these hacks and I still look like dog shit. But um, I mean, he's the king of uh, trying to hack sleep. And I'm thinking like there realistically, at least in my experience, is really no way to hack sleep. Uh, you know, there's, you know, circadian rhythms and you have to sleep within the circadian rhythms or we run into problems. And um, so, I mean, if you come uh, and I'm not looking for any hacks, I'm just looking for this or any way that you found to necessarily mitigate a lack of sleep in terms of like not necessarily uh, more of a uh, acute type deal instead of chronic. Sure. So, no, I don't think that we've been able to hack the requirement of how much your body needs on a day-to-day -day basis. We need foundational and healthy sleep every day. Um, what we have seen is that when I work with athletes, where we know we're going to strategize around a day where they're not going to get you know, their ideal amount of rest just because of travel or training loads, then what I try to do is look at the other days leading up to that or what does a schedule allow so that when you have the opportunity to have consistent foundational, you know, uh, well-controlled uh, sleep environment, then we're going to optimize that time and, and kind of strategize when we're going to have more challenges in the schedule to kind of mitigate that during the daytime for sure you know i do utilize power naps try to do, be, do that effectively it's not a replacement for adequate sleep at nighttime but definitely short power naps can give athletes a temporary boost in alertness and performance for a couple of hours and so, so i do try to strategize around that of when they do need to be at their best or when it is game time and how we do that effectively what would be an ideal length? I mean, I know um, I'm sure everybody here that's ever taken a nap. I mean, you can kind of hit that sweet spot of like 30 to 40 minutes is okay. And then in, and once you 
creep over that hour all of a sudden you like wake up and it's almost even worse exactly yeah so um short power naps 30 minutes or less is is what i recommend um and timing that prior to a game um the reason is i'll give you that boost for about two to three hours but then it keeps you in lighter stages of sleep and so that you don't go into those deeper stages and wake up with that feeling of being more sluggish or more groggy when you've experienced those longer naps. Gotcha. Um, in terms of like, um, you know, and there's some, probably so much conflicting information and, you know, everybody and their mother has an idea of how much you should, you should sleep. And I've always kind of subscribed to a little bit of the circadian rhythm, like that 10 to two idea that if you're in bed before 10 o'clock and, uh, you know, you can sleep at least, you know, let's say, uh, you know, well past that two o'clock. I mean, I remember, uh, years ago working with a doctor who talked about like, you know, circadian rhythm, if you can sleep and be in bed at a certain point, that was more important than necessarily certain blocks of sleep were more advantageous at certain times. Like, like, uh, the sleep between, you know, like you, you were in the bed between like, uh, 10 and 5am, let's say was more beneficial sleep than going to bed at midnight and sleeping later in the day. Is that pretty accurate yeah. to what your findings? You know, I think the lower hanging fruit actually for most athletes is really one, just getting adequate sleep duration. Um, that in itself is like a very tricky challenge. And then two, about consistency. So when I look at the timing, I, I am, you know, most interested in trying to make sure that their sleep schedule is as regular as possible because that is such a difficult challenge with a lot of these athletes schedules the exact timing of when you're obtaining it sure that can have some impact on your on your um, sleep but again I think the lower hanging fruit is just having the consistency in the timing and then the actual duration in which they're getting day to day and then yes we can go into to those a little bit down the road all right so like the I guess the $64,000 question is how much sleep do we need yeah, the recommendation of as of 2015 is that for every healthy adult, we minimally need seven hours of sleep a night. That is the, the lower threshold, and they actually did away with the upper threshold. And so there is individual differences. I feel honestly terrible on seven hours of sleep and incredibly grumpy. I feel much better on nine hours. And so there are those individual differences that we have to keep in mind, as well as you don't have kids, do you? Sorry, I don't have a kid. Okay, I was going to say, uh, if uh, <laughs> uh, one day ho uh, hopefully you have kids and uh, say goodbye to that. <laughs> the sleep-deprived parent is a special uh, category. No, it's, um, yeah, I remember uh, we have, uh, I have twin daughters, and I don't think I slept more than 45 minutes at any one point for the first three months. And, uh, and uh, the hilarious part I tell these guys is uh, I basically got gray hair. I didn't have gray hair and then I got gray hair. <laughs> and then uh, my wife was like, you know, uh, we started talking about having another kid and I was like, I, I don't think I can go through it again. And we ended up having another one and um, it wasn't that bad. But I told my wife, I'm like, I'm never, if, if it's twins, um, marry somebody else. I'm leaving. I'm, I'm, not, I'm never going through this again because man, I'm not kidding. This stuff aged me in dog years. I know the sleep deprived parent is a special category. You get really good at mastering the power nap and, and a couple other strategies in there for sure. Well, but the, yes, uh, still minimally need those seven hours. And if you're talking about then the need for like these elite athletes, the expert opinion is that we are recommending between more the eight to 10 hours on a day to day basis. So, um, I always had this interesting idea and maybe you can give me some, some, um, shed some light on this. And, um, uh, whenever I, you know, have, uh, you know, gone in and only talked about performance. People always ask me about sleep and I've done this for not only professional teams and college teams and high school athletes, but also the military. 
uh, they always ask me, you know, like, well, what about sleep? And I always kind of pose the question back to them. Like, you think from like an evolutionary standpoint, here's the state that we go into where, you know, obviously we're, I guess you could say catatonic in a way, like our bodies are, you know, we're not aware of what the surrounding is going on around us. And so it's a pretty indefensible position. And I'm thinking to myself from an evolutionary standpoint, here's this position where we're, you know, I mean, think about, you know, thousands of years ago or, you know, millions of years ago, I mean, where everything out there was trying to eat us or was bigger than us and, you know, more better equipped. And here's this situation that we go into a completely indefensible situation and we have to shut down for almost, let's say, I mean, you know, a third of the day, um, you know, and then if you look at it from that point, if it's, you know, cause there's other animals that, you know, if you look at like giraffes or some of the other animals out there that don't really sleep that much. And so you think the indefensible nature of it, like the implications of that in terms of evolutionary standpoint are so high that here's this position to put us in such a vulnerable state, but yet it's so, so uh, fundamental to us. And so whenever I posted people like that, they were always like, okay, so sleep's important. I'm like, yeah, think about it. So mm-hmm. it was kind of a good argument in a, in a way I kind of backed into trying to talk about the, the emphasis of sleep. And it seems that for so long, people have just kind of discounted it. Like, Hey, I have this much to get done during the day. And if I can't get it done, then obviously I just kind of push into my sleep. It seems to be that kind of variable. Um, is there something, and I, and I know you mentioned it working with athletes, the idea of a sleep bank where you, uh, you know, know that an athlete might have uh, a lower amount of sleep in the future. So then you tend to kind of build up a little bit and almost look like, you know, I'm going to try to put a little positive out on this and get in black and then you can kind right. of go on the backside. Sure. So yeah, I mean, life gets busy, our schedules get incredibly packed and then sleep is, as you mentioned, one of the first things that we sacrifice and we overlook, right? It is incredibly common. Um, in terms of a sleeping, so you build up a sleep debt when you don't get adequate sleep every night, right? So we call that an accumulated sleep debt. And um, we do think that you can pay back that sleep debt, at least acutely, um, but it does require sleeping more than what you're typically getting to start to pay that back. Now, your question about can you bank sleep kind of going into a surplus, I think that's still to be fully you know, elucidated, but we do recognize that getting additional sleep prior to a situation when you're going to be getting inadequate rest, that can still be beneficial. So there's been a couple of studies that have looked at that in a short-term um, kind of short-term getting this extra sleep prior to. And that's something that I'm actually looking at too right now is short-term, what I'm calling sleep loading prior to um, an event or seeing if there are those benefits by getting additional rest opportunities. Even are temporary. you looking for volunteers? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so uh, um, right here. Uh, uh, Doc Parsi told me there was a study, I, I think it was somewhere in some um, like Northern country like Sweden where they were, uh, locking people in, uh, like, I want to say like bomb shelters and they were trying to figure out like how sleep deprived people were. And I think they were locking them there for 12 hours. And the people that went in were like sleeping that full solid 12 hours. And about like three, four weeks later, all of a sudden they started sleeping less and they ended up, um, you know, working, I think to a rate rate around seven hours, which was the ideal amount. I'm sure you know the study. And, yeah, uh, there's some very early studies in the cave, like cave, the cave studies in yep. which you're really trying to what we call sleep extend and give these additional rest opportunities to see how much can you actually pay back and then how much are you really getting that is your individual need every night. And so you do see that change over, yes, a couple of weeks. Is there, um, you know, uh, factors for, for wake up? And this is something that I'm sure everybody here has had a, a situation where, you know, you, let's say you're in bed by 10 and you historically wake up at five o'clock and then something wakes you up at like two or two thirty 
or something happens and all of a sudden, you know, you can't go back to sleep. And I always think, is there, uh, like, what would be the most advantageous to wake up? I mean, uh, alarm clock, um, you know, my wife has this, uh, like, little alarm clock that basically emits light. So instead of ringing, it, like, shines light on her, which is awful. She tried to put it on my side, and I, like, just kept covering it up. And she's like, why do you keep covering it up? I'm like, because it's awful. Why don't you use it and then just tap me? So I'm just wondering, like, um, you know, and I know there's like a million different apps. I mean, well, there's an app for everything now. Um, there's probably an app to tell you about the apps. So, uh, like, I, you know, and, and that's something that, um, that people, you know, whenever they start talking about sleep, I always think, is there, uh, you know, is there, like, what's the most advantageous to kind of break the sleep and kind of be able to, to necessarily find a way through it? If that makes sense. Sure. There, to my knowledge, hasn't been great studies specifically looking at how is best to wake up. Obviously, there is some regarding if you can wake up in lighter stages of sleep and not coming out of some of the deeper stages, then you might have what we call less of that sleep inertia or that grogginess or the sluggishness. Um, but then that means also accurately being able to assess, obviously, what stage of sleep you're in when you're coming out of those early morning hours. Um, to get to your question about if you wake up during the middle of the night and can't fall back to sleep, something that I recommend for a lot of athletes is called like a sleep reset. Like if you're unable to fall asleep after 30 minutes, 45 minutes, it can be a really vicious cycle, right? Looking at the clock and then knowing that you're trying to sleep and get back. So I actually have athletes get up, get out of bed, go read for 10 minutes, go stretch for 10 minutes and then come back and then retry to sleep again. And so that at least can break up that really vicious cycle to try to get you back into uh, sleep for those early morning hours. Yeah, I um, have uh, zero sleep problems um, to the point where actually uh, if I put my head, I could probably lay down on this floor and fall asleep. But like I, I remember reading some studies where they were like, oh, if you fall asleep within, you know, within three minutes, you might be sleep deprived. And uh, so I started uh, having my wife being like, okay, well, as soon as we lay down, I want you to try to keep an eye on how long it takes me to sleep. So I'm usually good for about one breath. So I can. That's where you're holding strong at about 30 uh, seconds it's, right it's, now? It's, it's pretty much like I can take like, one deep breath and my wife's like, you're pretty much asleep. I can hear the changing of breathing within one sleep. And uh, I'm like, that means I'm obviously sleep deprived, but uh, I'm telling you, dude, it's parenthood. It's awful. I, I don't know. Don't, on, don't have kids. When we're on the road, it's a competition for me to get to sleep first because John's a snore. That's uh, not true. Not always. Not always. No. Dude, I'm telling you. You Every don't time. know. You're asleep. You don't know. I, I would know. I, my, my, light, my wife's a light sleeper, and I ask her, and she's like, sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't. It's pretty much like. It must be the air travel, because every time. Well, probably. Well, we need to break it to you. Passing out in about 30 seconds definitely can be an indication you may not be getting enough sleep day to day. Oh, I'm, dude, I, I'm, I like, yeah, there's, there's no doubt. I wish I could sleep more. Um, I'm, but now that I've talked to an expert, I'm going to go home and tell my wife that we probably shouldn't work as much when you probably need to sleep more. Be like, well, what do you think? I'm just going to start going to bed when the kids go to bed at 7.30. Sounds like a plan. Sounds pretty good. Because, I mean, if you think, like, like my, my little boy's a year, and, uh, I was, you know, we chart his sleep pretty well, and so he's in bed by 7.30, and I think he sleeps, and wait, he wakes up at probably around 6 a.m., and then he gets, like, two naps a day for, you know, like, we were like one nap, so it's like 90 minutes. So, I mean, he's, yeah, I mean, so he gets a legit 12 hours, and I look at how, how fast he grows and how active he is. And I'm thinking to myself, man, I wonder if uh, we could get 12 hours. But could you actually sleep 12 hours and uh, still have a job? We'll make up the slack for you, buddy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Thanks. appreciate it. 
Sharon, I want to get into appeal. So you work with a lot of professional athletes and they have a lot of other opportunities to enjoy themselves. So when you speak to these athletes, what is your appeal to buy into less fun time, more sleep time? <laughs> Good question. So first of all, it is not just the athletes. You got to get management, staff, coaches, everyone on the same page to understand why is this important? And then why does this need a priority? Because you're right. I, I try not to frame it in the less fun, more sleep. <laughs> but you know, I think what a lot of athletes just intuitively recognize that, hey, for them to have a long of a career as possible, this recovery, this sleep component really is critical. And for most athletes, a lot of them just have never looked at this before. And I think they intuitively can start to connect those dots. They know when they've had a bad night's sleep, how that might affect them during the daytime. Um, and just, I would say, yeah, most often these athletes just haven't focused on it before. And so when you start, start to connect the dots for them about how this affects not just their on-field performance, but how does this affect their body's ability to recover? How does this affect their injury risk? How does this affect their body's you know, immune function, um, then I think they start to perk up, especially just because when you are able to quantify some of those numbers of how much that might affect, say, the reaction time, or again, some of the on-field performance measures, then they start to realize that there's not only the decrements that are going to happen where they don't prioritize this, but then I think they also start to see that there are potentially more of a performance capacity that maybe they haven't been able to tap into um, because this just hasn't been the priority. And one of the things you use for awareness, just kind of following your work, was the Moss score for the NBA. So can you tell our listeners about kind of the score that you gave to the, the scheduling and then your successful percentage applying the score to the games this season? Sure. So this was a, you know, an exciting and, and fun project in collaboration with ESPN this year in which we looked at the NBA schedule and were predicting when tired teams would lose based on strictly the, the, the schedule for the season, including game density, time zone changes, potential loss of sleep. Um, and this is this is not factoring in strength of team. And so October before the season started, we made these predictions and I looked at these, the schedule on basically a 12 point scale. And there's about eight different factors that I incorporated into this. And so then we picked out and predicted that there's 42 games that we were calling schedule alert games based on last season alone would be a predicted loss of about 57%. And then there was going to be the 17 worst games. And those were our red alert games. And based on last season alone, it was predicted to be 78% predicted loss. All right. So now you want to know how we did now that the season basically is coming to a close. All right. Yes. So those, those worst of the worst 17 red alert games predicted loss again was supposed to be 78%. We finished out at 76%. So we'll, 13 of the 17 games were losses, again, regardless of strength of team. And then of those 42 overall schedule alert games, again, predicted was supposed to be 57%. We finished out with 69%. So that's 29 out of 42 games were losses. And so Vegas is calling, basically. <laughs> Bookies are calling you. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, this cool. is crazy. The yeah. gamblers have kept me apprised of how we've done during the season. <laughs> That was not the intention of it. You know, we really wanted to bring awareness to the kind of, you know, how the schedule is in terms of potentially impacting 
games, we wanted to bring awareness to the importance of rest and sleep science about time zone and travel. Um, and we hope that this kind of brought that to the forefront of what this might mean over a season. So it was a very fun project, you know, and we'll hopefully do it again next year if you're interested what, in following along. Was one of the factors, uh, the Kardashian effect, because James Harden, I'm a Rockets fan, James Harden broke up with one of the Kardashians and now he's an MVP candidate. I imagine he lost some sleep just um, in that relationship. Oh, wait. So he broke up with the Kardashian and then his life went on to be better? Yeah. I thought that anybody that uh, uh, dealt with the Kardashians ends up like, uh, what's his name? Um, Lamar Odom. Lamar Odom. He ended up in a, uh, what was it, uh, cocaine-fueled binge in Reno, Nevada with hookers? Something like that. So uh, it sounds like a, probably a Sunday at the Kardashian house. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. Moving on. So, and then, uh, sure. You spoke at South, South by Southwest. Well, damn, we should, or we just call it South by since we're, we're locals now. But, um, so, and you spoke on Moneyball 2.0. Uh, so I couldn't find any clips or anything like that, but could you kind of give us a preview of what your lecture and presentation was about? Was it about this kind of sleep score and effect? Oh, it was it was a fun panel. Um, Tom Hamstrom and and uh, Marcus Dalia from P3. We had a panel just on wearables and sort of just an overall kind of diving into sports science and where that's kind of going across the leagues, not just the NBA, um, and what that kind of means in the future. We we didn't touch too much on the scoring, but that's obviously one thing that has been a fun collaboration for the season. So um, it was a great event. Got to talk about you know where we see sports science evolving within the different leagues, um, what wearables are being approved or not approved uh, across the different leagues and kind of the differences between them. So what's, what's the future? Is everyone going to wear kind of a wristband that gives us red, uh, green, yellow days? You know what? Like, um, I kind of disagree with some of that stuff because uh, like we talked earlier, it adds a layer of stress. I know that when I was trying to track my sleep with like a, you know, a phone and a watch and all of a sudden if I wasn't getting restful sleep or I wasn't getting enough, that actually stressed me out even more. Um, the one thing that I actually have found though that helped sleep more than anything uh, is uh, Dr. Tom gave me a CPAP. And it was, I think it was called a uh, breathe right or something. Um, but it's a, uh, it, it's a pretty quiet sleep, um, CPAP and my sleep is a hundred times better with it than without it. And so I, I think for, for some people like a CPAP or something like that, like a sleep aid, but I think so sometimes charting the sleep. Um, and the other one too, as a young NFL player, the last thing I wanted to, my team to know was how little I was sleeping because I, I was out causing trouble as much as I can. So I, I know that they were like wanting to start track guy sleep and start kind of monitoring to him. And dudes were like, no way. Cause then you're going to see that I'm at the club or at the bar till like 2am every night. So, I mean, but it's becoming, you know, I mean, it's, it's such a multi-million dollar business that now they're trying to control every aspect of it. But, um, the, uh, the, the one which is, is kind of interesting. And I don't know if you have the research to necessarily go one way or other. I'm sure you might have some feelings about it, but um, you know, with a lot of the issues that we're seeing in the NFL players with uh, the CT and the concussions and some of the neurological problems that guys are running into. Um, and I know there's a direct correlation between quality of sleep, sleep length and, you know, restful sleep and neurological issues. Do you think that uh, sleep could necessarily help or compound or lack of sleep could be compounding some of these issues? 
Definitely. I think a lot of the research still needs to dive more deeply into that relationship between sleep and, and concussion. And we do know that sometimes um, when athletes have concussions, their sleep becomes more fragmented. Or on the other side, you can have what's called hypersomnia, where they want to sleep more. And how um, we manage concussions in relation to prescribed prescriptions around sleep, I think, is still developing. Um, and more is going to come down the road. You said you spent the last two years kind of on the practical application side of your research. So one thing that we discuss a lot in terms of strength and conditioning is the science versus the application and uh, a coach basically needs to be aware of both. So from your experience, kind of what has been that the challenge is practically applying and getting your athletes to invest in, in sleep? Great question. I, th I think it's it's understanding how you can apply it in the practical setting, given the constraints of the realities in professional sport. That's who I predominantly work with. And so while you can have great recommendations on, say, scheduling or what would be ideal on the body clock when it comes to the realities of what the team actually needs to schedule or, or what actually becomes um, what gets executed, it can look very different. Um, and then I think starting to connect those dots when you talk about, you know, or John touched on it, you know, some of the objective sleep monitors. And, you know, I do think that they can be helpful and useful tools so that athletes start to understand what happens at nighttime impacts what happens during the daytime. But yes, there are also other issues at play here where it's, um, you know, and the, the legitimate concerns around privacy of that data um, or how that can be used. You know, my hope is that it becomes just a beneficial tool and an informative tool for athletes and and staff to engage in those conversations so we can only better manage um, an athlete's training and ultimate recovery. But obviously there's a lot of other factors um, being balanced simultaneously. Has this practical application these past two years inspired you to go back and readjust your research to look at different things? Great question. So actually, I'm going to clarify, it wasn't just the last years. I've been doing a lot of the applied work simultaneously with the research over the last probably about seven years, seven, eight years in there. Um, I've just taken some additional time the last two years to really dive a little bit more deeply. Um, you know, I actually think it's all in one the same. You know, working with elite athletes, um, that helps me, you know, make observations and understand the compelling questions that I will then go and go to the laboratory and try to design a well-controlled study to, to get at that question so that then when we go back, um, we can have good clinical recommendations for our athletes. So I actually see this as one continuous loop that it is really being involved day to day with athletes that informs what I'm going to do um, on the research side. And then that's going to then help me be able to figure out what's practical and what we can adjust um, and improve in terms of their day to day training. Will ever be the day that you are able to, I, I guess, um, figure out the performance gain down to say, hey, I know that if um, you sleep, uh, let's say seven hours or eight hours, whatever you kind of go through and you deem unique for each individual, that if you can sleep this much for, let's say, 30 days, that we'll know that this will, you know, equate to, um, I don't know, I mean, because it's so hard. I mean, football is such a, a arbitrary sport and that, you know, how do you necessarily look at wins and losses or uh, performance based on an individual? But I think about performance-based stuff like uh, swimming track or, you know, things where you're competing against a clock where you could look and say, hey, you know what, this is based off of the research we've known um, that this is equal to a six or seven or even maybe a 10% performance increase over a period of time. 
where, I mean, you can, and I'm, I'm sure that would, you know, in a dream state would be the coolest way to do it. But I mean, is there ever, you think at some point you might have enough research or be able to work with enough where that might be a possibility? I think we're heading in that direction. That's why we have to, you know, again, design, design studies in which we're asking specific questions. So when you talk about, you know, that 10th of a second, uh, 10th or, you know, two tenths of a second, I think we're talking about really quantifying in terms of say reaction time, where you're talking about fatigue levels, are you talking about working memory? Um, and then we're able to quantify that a little bit more easily when it's a very specific question we're getting out of what we're trying to assess, um, rather than just saying overall performance improvement, right? Um, and, and yes, I think more of the studies in sleep and athletes have started to emerge in the last five years, which is excellent. And we need additional studies in this area. Um, but yeah, I think that's what athletes perk up to is if you can show what the, def, the, the performance either detriment is or improvement over, say, a week or over several weeks and what that equates to, um, that's when they're most interested because they know what that could mean ultimately, like out on the court or on the field. Um, there are, there's always going to be individual differences, right? And so we have to keep that in mind that different athletes may respond a little bit differently to some of these interventions or, or their recovery. And then also where they're starting from, right? So like John, you as a young dad, maybe you have, you know, 30 hours of sleep debt built up versus tax might be, um, you know, getting adequate sleep. And so where you guys start from can be also very different. And then you want to obviously adjust so that it's, um, it's more personalized to how a you respond and then where you start from. So what, what would be the first step um, for an individual, like people listening to this podcast that want to almost, you know, and, and I, <laughs> do you guys remember the, uh, uh, the infomercial years ago it was the lady with the shaved head where she was like, break the insanity. I don't remember that. Like, so there was this infomercial and this lady like showed a picture and she was like, you know, 400 pounds and then she's like super skinny and she's like, I was able to break the insanity and she was, kind of this, I don't know, kind of a wacky, charismatic, kind of angry figure on it. But I always think like, whenever people are like, well, what's the first step? How do I begin to work? I mean, is it creating a sleep journal where you, you know, sit down and you're like, hey, I'm going to, you know, over the next 30 days, I'm going to try to be in bed by X and this is the time I'm going to wake up? Or uh, is it something where, hey, I'm going to go to bed, let's say 10 o'clock, and I'm just going to naturally wake up, which a lot of people don't have the option for. Um, So I'm just thinking like, Charting the sleep, maybe uh, making a sleep journal is really where people should start and then trying to understand how much you need. I mean, because, uh, you know, the hard part, and it's always, it's always fun to work with high-level performance, um, you know, at the top-tier athletes, but unfortunately, they make up 0.001% of the population, and, and for the majority of the people we work with are, you know, people like, you know, dads like myself or, uh, you know, other people that are just trying to, you know, perform better at life or, or, you know, not necessarily working on the NBA professional level. So I'm just wondering about, you know, what takeaways can we give people in terms of like, where should they start? How can they begin to almost master or even just reclaim or start understanding how they should start the sleep journey? Yeah, great. So bottom line, healthy sleep is important for each and every one of us, whether you're, yes, the elite athlete and professional athlete or you're just like a weekend warrior, right? Healthy sleep is foundational um, for all of us. So I think what I recommend where you start from, there's sort of three buckets, right? There's bucket one, which is like sleep duration. How much sleep are you getting? And again, we talked about like seven being that minimum threshold. Work your way up to there if you're not there. And I think all of us can do 30 minutes more. So if you're at six hours, let's go six and a half this week. I'm, I'm a huge fan of small steps in the right direction, and we can build on that. 
Um, and if you're someone who's getting seven and a half and you know that that's not sufficient, you build up to eight hours. So that's kind of bucket one. Bucket two is looking at sleep quality. So the lifestyle and some of the behaviors around your sleep, like do you actually have a wind down routine before bed? Um, you know, look and evaluate your alcohol and your caffeine intake. How do you gauge like your power naps if they're included in your daytime? Um, a lot of other kind of factors that will affect the quality of a rest, that's also going to be a critical component. And then lastly is the timing of your sleep. So that's that third bucket is how consistent. I know it's so hard. We get so wrapped up in our days that a lot of times there's inconsistencies of when you're going to bed and waking up. And that can also have a big factor in terms of your sleep. So those are places that I would start. Again, like the duration two, the quality, and then three, the timing. And yeah, it can be helpful if you partner that with a sleep log or um, there's a lot of different consumer wearables and apps that people have started to like to be able to help them do that more effectively. But I think, um, again, I'm a huge fan of these small steps in each of these areas, and then um, it'll help you at least be more attentive to it as you try to increase these areas along the way. Have you guys analyzed, um, you know, I guess like uh, beds is a, is, is a great example. Um, you know, that was something that was constantly in the NFL. They were always talking to us about our bed. What kind of bed are you sleeping on? And I remember thinking like, like uh, nobody ever talked to me how much I was supposed to be sleeping. All they ever wanted to talk to me is what I was sleeping on. And I remember like I tried like a um, uh, sleep number bed and then I ended up for me, basically the best was just a Tempur-Pedic. Um, and I just found that that was like by far the, uh, the best sleep I've ever had that. And, um, I'm thinking we stayed at a hotel in New York that had a pretty amazing bed. So, but, um, is it something where, uh, you know, I mean, obviously everybody, you know, there's a million different beds, everybody's going to be different, but I mean, is it something with your athletes where you've looked, you know, taken it down to say, what kind of bed are you sleeping on? I mean, obviously the sleep wouldn't be as restful on a, you know, paper thin mattress in the dorms at Stanford, a post from you know, a really nice thick, you know, 16 inch Tempur-Pedic bed. Right. I haven't done research specific on, on mattresses and their sleep surfaces in athletes, but it is something that I always bring up in conversation because as you mentioned, yes, that can make a difference, especially with these athletes too, who are traveling a lot and not always on their home um, and regular sleep surface that can also impact um, their sleep on the road too. So I do bring that up. Individual differences, like you said, for sure. Um, I think about you know, just if there's any past injury to the athlete too, and trying to make sure that that's not aggravated when they are sleeping at nighttime, they should be comfortable. Um, and they should be obviously, um, not waking up with like extra pains based on their sleep service. Cause you're right. You sleep on this thing for, you know, about a third of your life, eight hours during the night, hopefully. And so it is important that they're comfortable on their sleep surface. Um, so, you know, and, uh, I don't even know how to phrase this necessarily, but is if for, for people listening, I mean, is it something where it, it's simple to the people that sleep more? And I know you guys have changed the, the recommendations, people that sleep uh, seven hours or more. I mean, uh, opposed to people that sleep seven hours or less consistently uh, like the, you know, we, we talked about the performance benefits, but what about just basic health benefits? Um, right. you know, I mean, you know, you look at elevated cortisol. I mean, I, I know that there's direct relationships between, uh, you know, the amount of sleep that you get and also, um, you know, blood sugar and diabetes. I mean, there's a million different, uh, factors. I mean, and have you guys gone to the point too? I'm sure you've done some blood testing and working with people and actually looked at blood work based on, you know, the amounts that they sleep and maybe changing and start mitigating some of the issues that the, come across. 
Right. So that is why the recommendation as of 2015 was that every healthy adult should be getting minimally seven hours because when <clears throat> they looked across the literature, getting less than seven hours chronically does have a higher risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, um, higher you know, risk for um, you know, motor vehicle accidents and, and performance errors. And so that's why they've set that as that lower threshold. Um, I haven't done, I haven't dived into biomarkers just yet with a lot of my athletes, though I'm still fascinated and, and thinking about going down that route as well. Um, but yeah, we, you know, we know that inadequate sleep affects immune function and some of the physiological effects that are starting to come out too, in terms of, um, inadequate rest in athletes is fascinating. And I think we're only going to see more of that emerge in the next couple of years. Why do you think it's taken so long for us to get this much knowledge on sleep? I mean, it seems like such a fundamental thing. I mean, it's, it, it seems like uh, one of those things that I'm surprised that this research hasn't been done, that here we are in 2017 with this, you know, I mean, but it's also every year we go on, we probably learn how little we know, but I'm surprised mm -hmm. like 50, 60 years ago, they weren't investigating sleep into, you know, or even 20, 30 years ago. It seems like something has just come in within the last 10 years. It's a young field. So my longtime mentor, Dr. William DeMent, he's considered the father of modern sleep medicine, and he really started the field only 50, 60 years ago during his graduate work and starting to understand the stages of sleep, and the field has evolved out of his early work. And so I think, one, there's, there's that is that we're a relatively young field, and we're still starting to understand, you know, how sleep impacts us um, day to day. You know, we still don't even really know why we sleep. Right? There's lots of different theories and we understand a little bit more on what those effects are when we're not getting adequate rest, but um, that's still a puzzle. Man, I, I thought we knew what we slept. I mean, I, I always thought that, uh, I mean, can you imagine just the amount of information that we're taking in uh, visually? I mean, the fact that like, I mean, it's like a computer. I mean, I'm sure like everybody here, you leave your laptop plugged on all the time, then all of a sudden it just stops working. When you do, you got to reboot it. And then as soon as you reboot it, it tends to work a little bit better. So I'm just wondering, like, uh, at least for me, I mean, just the amount of information, it's almost like your ability to unplug and kind of enter a, a state. But yeah, we know what the brain is way more active in sleep time than it is during the day. So I just wonder if it's like a visual input kind of thing, just kind of turning off and, you know, dark room, quiet and being able to just be motionless. Well, we know it is foundational. We know that we need this physiological time too for recovery and repair. Um, we know what happens during certain stages of sleep, right? So you just you talked about learning and memory and, and the ability to we need to consolidate um, that information during certain stages of sleep. We do know that those are critical, um, but we're talking big picture, you know, why we sleep and why is it structured the way it is and why is it for this duration? I think those are still very fascinating questions. Well, what, uh, what kind of research do you need to answer these questions? I mean, I mean, is it biomarkers? Is it a uh, performance? I mean, I just kind of wonder if, uh, if you had an unlimited budget and the ability to do whatever you wanted, you think you could crack all these codes? You figure out exactly like down to the point where there was genetic testing for people and you could say, Hey, you know what, for your genetic type and some of the biomarkers that we've looked at, you need X and you need to be in sleep in this situation. I just, 
I'm kind of surprised at this point that, um, you know, I mean, you, you think about everybody's so, uh, you know, interested. There's so much research within the daylight and within our kind of waking hours that here's this process that we have. And I just, I'm always just go back to that evolutionary idea that, you know, here's our indefensible state of us just, you know, and I kind of imagine some, you know, Neanderthal caveman, early human, uh, homo sapien hiding in a cave and trying to roll a rock in. So some animal doesn't come in to eat him in his sleep, you know, to rest. And, uh, um, it's such a, a fundamental aspect that I'm just always, uh, you know, whenever you hear people argue about, ah, you don't need that. You're like, man, that's so crazy. So it's kind of me. John, you sound like a budding sleep scientist in the well, movie. Well, I, I, um, I became really interested in sleep when I had kids and I saw the effects of not sleeping day after day. <laughs> And it, 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 it was like, you know, like, uh, you know, when I played in the NFL and I was young and single, like we would go out and I wouldn't sleep. And then all of a sudden I looked at it like a sleep mag. I'd be like, oh, if I, if I go to bed late or we're out, you know what, I'm just going to sleep a ton the next couple of days and try to make up for it. And so I was always into this kind of trying to, you know, create a balance, kind of like if I'm going to drive my car a hundred miles, I'm going to go put in, you know, 125 gallons of gas or I mean, sorry, uh, uh, gas to go for 125 miles. And I was always looking at it like filling up a gas tank. And then when we had the twins, um, and I didn't sleep and there was no option to sleep. And I remember like, as I was driving, having these almost like out of body moments where, you know, like I was, you know, you kind of look around and you felt like you were in a video game and I felt like that for three months. And, uh, it, it just really kind of dawned on me for the first time in my life that like how, f- how important sleep is. And, um, and then I just, and then the other one is, uh, I get my blood work done twice a year by, um, Tom Inkledon, who's our, uh, doc out in Arizona. And the, my blood work was dramatically different uh, during that period. I remember I went and I got blood work done and he, you know, he was like, dude, what's going on? And I, I, you know, and he knew we had the kids and I kind of told him and he's like, Oh yeah, this totally makes sense. And I'm like, what the fuck do you mean this makes sense? And he, he's like, you know, um, there's, you know, pretty significant problems in, in, that we see in parents, especially with young children that we don't see in any other population. And then I started running into more and more dads hitting me up about training that were in what I call the dark times, which is, you know, young children dealing with this lack of sleep. And it was like, um, you know, the, their hormones were off, like testosterone was low. Um, you know, uh, everything, you know, blood sugar was high. Cortisol was high. Uh, you know, adrenal fatigue because all of a sudden their, um, you know, the cortisol was, you know, all messed up. I mean, so just the amount of problems that I saw and I kind of always kind of take everything back to this evolutionary approaches, you know, if this is how every human on the planet has entered the world and everybody's had the same role, which is, is always a funny thought. Cause when you talk to young parents, they feel that they're the only ones that have ever had to deal with this. And I always tell them like, dude, every human being on the planet has entered the world this way. And every human being has had parents that have at some point, hopefully most of them have had to deal with this. So if I think like, how come there's not some in uh, evolutionary protection in place to almost like safeguard us, in terms of this idea of, of having kids, especially being woken up in the night by children that don't want to sleep. So um, that's just where I got really fascinated with it and trying to figure out how you mitigate these problems and help people. And we actually have a training program called Grindstone that's based off of this exact model where as a young par- parent dealing with kids, um, you know, and you still want to lift weights, you have to be able to time it in such a way with like recommended days, mandatory days, and you have to be able to adjust the days based on how you sleep and uh, I mean, I've looked at everything from, you know, Joel Jameson's, um, you know, uh, heart rate variability to just about every matrix that I've seen that, you know, tests uh, parasympathetic, sympathetic nervous system and just a million different ways to try to try to figure it out. 
And I will tell you this, that if you are a parent that doesn't sleep, it doesn't matter what you do. You're always in the red. And it, and it's just one of those things where people hit me up and I get, you know, and I, I'm not exaggerating, I get five emails a day about this exact thing. And I tell people the same thing. You just have to weather the storm. Like every human being's had to do it. Just stand up, take your pill. It's parenthood. That's why it's a parenthood. That's why you get to bitch at your kids when they get older and tell them you don't know, you know, and I'm like, it's, it, it's, it's part of your receipt as a parent. So, um, I keep always waiting that somebody smart like you, like yourself is going to come in and give me some little bit of knowledge and some strategy that I can play off to people and be like, I talked to this really smart doc with Stanford. And even though I'm a Berkeley guy, I'm going to say that, you know, Stanford's an amazing place uh, that gave me this little tidbit. And unfortunately, every time I talk to somebody about sleep, there's no replace for not only quantity, quality, and duration. So that's, Damn, I always hope there's some little tidbit and you're like, all this research has told us that if you chew valerian root and go to sleep at six, you know, I mean, like, uh, but, the, but those are all hacks and we know that there's no, no hacks for anything. So. Right. Yeah. No, we do know that you need still that foundational amount, your individual sleep need every single night, but we can look about the quality, right? So can we maximize the quality in which you do get when you do get those hours during the night or... Um, what can you do during the daytime to give you a little bit more to get through some of that day? So have you tried the caffeine nap? No, uh, but um, I can drink probably a pot of coffee at like 10 o'clock at night and fall right okay. asleep. Okay, so this is perfect for you, right? So caffeine takes about 15 minutes to kick in. So if you're saying, John, you can pass out in two seconds, one breath, then you go down that cup of coffee, you go take your 30-minute power nap when your kid's taking their nap, right? And then in 30 minutes, you're going to wake up and bam, you're going to have both the caffeine have kicked in and the power nap would have kicked in. And there actually is research to demonstrate that that is actually more effective than just caffeine alone or just the power nap alone. Ooh, I like it. Yeah. So we, uh, we had a guy do um, come in and um, um, Dan Reardon, who has a company called Fitness Genes, and they kind of do a fun deal where they, you know, they do some saliva testing and I think they, they give something like 30 some markers for performance based off some genetic stuff. And, um, even though there's, you know, 22,000 genes they've identified and it's just more of a, I wouldn't, Check I mean, it. yeah, it's, it's, it's just kind of a fun deal. And so, um, in there they talked about, um, your body's ability to process caffeine that certain people are able to process caffeine very quickly and other people are not. And the people that cannot process caffeine quickly are like Luke, who is not here right now, who works with us, where if he has like a cup of coffee at like after 12 o'clock, he'll be like wide awake all day. Whereas for some reason, coffee doesn't affect me at all. I mean, I could drink it all day and, and never mess with my sleep. So I always wonder if, uh, I mean, and that, that was based off some genetic stuff. So, um, but I will definitely give the, uh, the coffee and a nap a try. Uh, that, that'll be my next one. Today. Yeah, today that's fine. But I, I I have about twenty hours of work to do today, and I got about exactly. only about ten hours to get it done. So thirty minutes. Well, and uh, we we have a hell of a problem in that. Um, you know, we moved from Newport Beach out here to Texas, and the house that we ended up moving into, uh, they told us had really good internet. It doesn't. So they uh, we have this like dish thing that is like AOL in India in nineteen eighty nine kind of internet is what I put it at. So I have to go to different coffee shops or come here to Luke until Time Warner sees fit to dig us a fiber line. So my work is, uh, is really spotty sometimes, as these guys know. They're like, John hasn't returned an email. I'm like, it's because I'm on the moon, pretty much. Well, now the world knows. Yeah. Uh, 
I'm curious about shift workers. So do they oh. see the same negative effects as parents or you say, um, invest this time during the day so you can get better at night. What if you work during the night? What's the approach there? Shift work is tricky. Definitely. There's a lot of research on shift workers because of that circadian disruption or the body clock that gets interrupted. Um, and, and they do have other associated higher risk of other health um, concerns related to shift work regularly. Um, in some ways, some of the athletes that I work with seem to have almost a shift work-like schedule, right? So we're heading into Major League Baseball season right now, right? And you see that these athletes often obviously are playing these night games, having to stay up late, and then um, have a shifted schedule as well. And so sometimes I think about how their schedule almost reflects some of these other schedules that we see more commonly in, you know, physicians or other workers that have these um, atypical schedules that aren't our typical nine to five. And it is difficult for them to often sleep when it's not, you know, dark outside and trying to maximize the quality of their rest when they do have those opportunities. It's definitely a challenge. No, I mean, um, the, the shift work thing has been pretty interesting. I mean, um, uh, and somebody explained to me, and this could be accurate, and I'm, I'm sure you know, um, I, I know you know more about circadian rhythms than I do, but they talked about um, uh, sleep cycles within your circadian rhythm, that there's one during the day, and then there's one during the night, that there's two sleep. Uh, I forgot what it was called. It was called, uh, or there, there were like uh, periods of advantageous sleep that if you miss one sleep cycle, you can catch another one. And uh, they, they told me that I believe the doctor that I talked to was a guy named Dr. Jin at the Newport Research Center in Newport Beach. And he talked about um, circadian rhythm being between 10 and 2 and then another one being later in the afternoon that sometimes shift workers, uh, if they were to miss that, that deal, it was more beneficial for them to sleep uh, later in the day opposed from coming home and sleeping right away. So we started recommending that for shift workers coming in and instead of falling right into bed, like to go work out and do some things and push it out a little bit and sleep right before, you know, a more kind of a more regular schedule. Yeah, I think what he might be referring to is you have natural peaks and troughs in your day in your circadian rhythm. So naturally, you'd be more awake in the morning. And then if you've ever noticed in the afternoon, you start to dip down um, and it's easier to take a nap. That's just a natural dip in your circadian rhythms. And then in the evening time, it comes up higher. Um, so less about the sleep cycle, but I think this natural ebb and flow in your, on your body's uh, typical day-to-day -day rhythm um, that will make it easier for someone like a shift worker to be able to take a, a nap at an appropriate time or sleep when, when they're naturally uh, more inclined to. So we do a lot of travel. So East Coast, West Coast, international. In terms of, I guess, staying on point, because we're basically rock stars. we got to be warm <laughs> when we need to. Um, what do you suggest for circadian rhythm? So if I'm traveling from central time, do I maintain that central time zone? If I'm going East coast, West coast, or even international? All your questions. Now the question back to you is it'll depend on how long you're going to be at this new time zone, right? So rule of thumb is dude, every time we're talking about sleep, seriously, I just keep yawning. You fuckers every, talking about sleep. Make, keeps making me tired. John, you got to do the caffeine power nap, the caffeine nap. If you guys could see this, I'm probably going to get up and go brew a pot of coffee. If this was at home, I would already have hit my espresso machine and tried to go laugh. But I'm not kidding. I was talking about sleep. I keep yawning. And I'm like, this is embarrassing. Okay, go go on. I'm sorry. 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 All right. So, so rule of thumb, right, is that for every time zone that you cross, it does take about one day for your body to readjust. So if you're going to go west coast to east coast, three time zones, it will take your body approximately three days to adjust. So really the strategy is, do you change your time zone or do you change your body clock 
or do you stay on your home time zone? And that really can depend on how long you're going to be in the new time zone. Um, and really what I try to encourage athletes to do is not just get on a plane, get to the new time zone and try to adjust when you get there. Cause sometimes that might be too late. For example, like in the NFL, right? If you're only arriving a day and a half, you're going to be playing likely jet lagged, but what can you do prior to getting on that flight? What are you doing on the flight and then what are you doing when you get off that flight and those strategies can be a little bit different when you're going east where you're trying to get that body clock earlier versus when you're coming west um, and you're trying to get that body clock a little bit later so you can use things to your advantage like sunlight exposure because that is one of the biggest uh, stimulus to try and shift your your clock um, or avoiding it depending on which travel direction and I'm sure you've also experienced too going East is always harder on your body than it does seem to be when you're coming back westward, right? Mm -hmm. And we, uh, we got Oktoberfest in September, so just taking as many notes as we can to be on. Yeah, you know what, though? I mean, I, like, um, it seems like the duration, I mean, realistically, like when you fly into Germany, I mean, dude, that's almost uh, opposite for our normal you know, sleep times. I know when I was on the West Coast, it was even worse. But it seems like, you know, for two days, you can kind of power through it. And then all of a sudden, it's like that third day, you just get like ninja blow darted where you're like, oh, God. And it's always that third day, day. that we go. Yeah, so. I know. I know. It's terrible. Like the first days, we feel pretty good. And then the third day, just what gets you. So. All right. Maybe we need to get a sleep plan and a circadian rhythm plan for you guys when you're heading over to Oktoberfest. How about that? Yeah. I, well, can, can you explain circadian rhythms? I mean, it's um, uh, like whenever I talk to people, it's usually easier to kind of show a graph, but can you kind of go through like just a basic, like rudimentary explanation of circadian rhythms and how they kind of the ebb and flow of it? Right. So, I mean, let's go back to what we talked about earlier, where there's your circadian rhythms is natural ebb and flow during the day. Um, you have these peaks in alertness, and then you have these troughs in alertness as well during the daytime. Um, and, and that has, yeah, this is this almost 24-hour uh, cyclical um, undulation, essentially, during the daytime. Um, and so then that is how it can also affect, like, your ability to take a power nap in the afternoon because it's easier when that's dipping down in your alertness than, say, right in the morning time where, where it's going to be higher. Um, and then that is, is kind of contrasted against your kind of your sleep drive, which kind of builds up through the whole day so that as every day goes or every hour goes by, it's building up your desire or your body's drive to sleep. So that's the highest point. And these are these two processes that are happening simultaneously that kind of control our sleep and our wake. Well, what drives a circadian rhythm? Is it sunlight? So the sunlight entrains um, what we call part of our brain, the suprachiasmatic nuclei, that helps control our body clock or our circadian rhythms. And our clock is a little bit longer than 24 hours every day, so we need that sunlight every day to kind of lock our body clocks onto this time zone and for this 24-hour period. So, I mean, uh, obviously, if I'm on the West Coast and, you know, opposed from somebody on the East Coast, uh, we're going to have a different circadian rhythm of time based off of, uh, I guess you could say, the, uh, the sun coming up and the sun setting. Your circadian rhythm is going to be similar, but then what it's in train to is based on your, your time zone and your, the light cues that you receive every day. So, does that make sense? Yeah. So, you what? getting the sun on the West coast is different than obviously him getting um, his body clock is on the East coast. So his is a little bit shifted from yours. And that's when you experience that, that jet lag, right? When you go to another time zone very quickly and your body hasn't adjusted to that local time. 
Well, what about people like, um, you know, we traveled to, um, you know, years ago, and we went to Oslo, Norway during the summer, and where it was 24 hours of light. And, you know, and, uh, you know, everybody seemed to be, you know, in a great mood and having a great time. And I made the mistake of asking about uh, the 24 hours of darkness. When well, I'll- you sent me there during the winter. And it was oh, all dark. I didn't see the sun for five days. Okay. Well, I said, well, I went during the summer, text went during the winter and people almost talked about it. Like it was the, uh, you know, like, um, like the Grendel or like, you know, I don't know if you know, um, uh, you know, Be- like Beowulf where they talk about like the, you know, the things that should never be named. Like they talked about it as this horrible thing, like this, this terrible time and how all these bad things happen and people wouldn't even mention it. And I was like, man, this is, you know, I mean, I'm in California where it's sunny all the time. And I just remember seeing like, um, you know, people have, you know, weather related depression and, uh, you know, just a, a myriad of issues associated with lack of sun. So I always wonder for, for sleep and so for the circadian rhythms, if you're not exposed to sunlight, I mean, have you done, or is, I mean, I'm sure there's research out and I'm being lazy and not looking for it, but, uh, you know, how does that necessarily affect and have you worked with any athletes from countries that, you know, had 24 hours of sunshine and 24 hours of darkness type of deal? I actually have not. Most of my athletes are, you know, some U.S. obviously U.S. based and some abroad, but not that have particularly had this as a as a concern. It clearly can affect their ability to sleep properly and get adequate rest when, um, you know, you don't have that normal sunlight exposure or just the days are 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 different, um, especially during, like you said, like those winter months. But I haven't actually worked with any athletes that particularly had that as a challenge. It would be very fascinating, though, because that just adds another layer that, you know, is, is something you have to factor into how you're going to strategize around their proper rest and recovery. Well, I mean, how do the circadian rhythms necessarily work without, with an absence of sunlight? I mean, dude. So you're still going to have your endogenous circadian rhythm, right? Where you're going to have this ebb and flow during the day and then that drive that is going to regulate that. But then um, when you don't have that sunlight, you, you can start, your clocks can start to free run. So if you go into a dark cave, you know, and they've done these studies many years ago, I don't think IRB would approve of them now, but um, you know, when <laughs> you're completely in dark um, and then your, your body clock starts to what's called free run and starts to elongate because our clocks are a little bit longer than 24 hours that's why it is important whether you realize it or not that you do have that sunlight exposure every day so our body clocks get locked on to our 24 hours here back at the presentation you introduce kind of uh, some of your success stories so uh just kind of the biggest changes for some of the athletes i don't know if you want to name names or kind of give give props to them uh, but what are some of your professional success stories that you want to share with with our crew uh are you are you asking about one in particular or just the nba nba mvp that's all (laughs) all right so yes being out here in the bay area i have had the the privilege to work with the golden state warriors and andre guadal is someone who's talked publicly about his sleep story so i can share that with you um and how much that he felt did that make a difference in terms of not only the long season but also yes during the championship run Um, and helping him to be at his best. And so he's someone that struggled with his sleep for 10 years. He would stay up till 4 a.m. playing video games, sleep from about 4 to 7, 
for three hours, roll into practice, play for a few hours, come home and take a two to three hour power nap. And this was this vicious cycle that he went through for literally 10 years since college. And he got to the Warriors about three years ago and said, you know, enough's enough. I, I know that I want to have as long of a career as possible. I know sleep and recovery is an important component of that, and I haven't done that well. So what can we do to make some changes? And so I was introduced to him, um, and we started to make uh, adjustments to how he, one, approached his sleep, so what that framework looked like, two, um, you know, some of the lifestyle behavior modifications around his sleep. We cut down his naps. We looked at his physiological need every day and how much sleep he should be obtaining. And we kind of restructured the timing of his rest too. A big part of that process, yes, was sleep extending um, him during that season. And so when he was getting that five to six hours, gradually going up to seven to eight. And um, yes, I have shared, you know, some of the stats that have been out there um, as we did that process. And, you know, his free throws went up 9%, his points per minute went up 29%, his threes increased twofold. And so, you know, he, um, don't get me wrong, he performed at a very high level for those 10 years prior. But what was so fascinating to me is just how much more we were able to uh, tap into on his performance capacity by when he truly had a foundational uh, amount of rest and recovery every day. And, and that's really the fun part too, is um, seeing him excel even more so than he's done in the past. And so, you know, he shared that sleep has, was a game changer and um, how much that impacted him during that long season. Uh, so much so that if you've caught it, the first picture he tweeted out actually after coming home with the finals MVP is him fast asleep on the plane, power napping away. <laughs> Proof's in the pudding. No, it's it's crazy. I mean, <clears throat> but I also think too in terms of reducing margin of error. I mean, it, it it's not just uh, it's just not the sleep. You know, you think about all of a sudden now he's, you know, like is it a one to one? Like you said, he's instead of staying up playing late video uh, video games or going out or doing other things, he's putting more emphasis on sleep, which allows him to be more well rested. So then, therefore, like uh, his practice and what he's doing in terms of his preparation is so much higher. <clears throat> so, I mean, people always look at it like uh, this one-to-one, -one, but we know nothing exists in a vacuum. So it's really the idea that here he is taking a more um, strategic approach to sleep, but what else is he taking a strategic approach to? I mean, I'm sure at that point he's like, well, let's look at diet, let's look at sleep, let's look at recovery, let's look at all these other things. And so, um, unfortunately, people don't necessarily just change one thing. So, and, and I'm sure for you as a, a researcher and somebody who is trying to, you know, pinpoint these things. I mean, you want everything to exist in a vacuum where you're like, let's just change one variable. But for a lot of professional athletes, you know, they're looking to change multiple variables, which I'm sure makes it even more and more complicated to, uh, to assess. But Hey, I mean, if, if, if he started sleeping more and worked with you and became the MVP, then you know what, it was all you. She's like, I got this Jersey signed in the back. I got this ring. So yeah, I'm pretty good. No, but it is a really neat success story. And, and I think, John, what you're getting at, too, is exactly why we have to have well-designed studies in the laboratory. We do try to control a lot of these other variables. So we're not changing around things like nutrition or some of the, uh, these other factors that, yes, may happen, obviously, in, in the real world. Um, and then we can also have those um, well-designed studies so that we can see what those performance outcomes may mean on reaction time. Or is it about their, um, you know, visual processing um, or is it about their cognitive processing or how does that affect on-field performance? And then we can hopefully integrate that 
at this elite level to make the best recommendations that we can. Yeah, we, I mean, we run into that constantly where, um, you know, with the different training programs and I always run this stuff like we're like, you know, actually trying to do research and, you know, put out training programs and have people subscribe to them. And then we get all their, all the matrix and information, whether or not, you know, they're sprinting, running, whatever it looks like. And, you know, you'll see somebody like, oh, I had a 30 pound PR and something. And, you know, and then you ask them like, okay, well, what else have you changed? Was it just the training program? It's like, oh, you know, now all of a sudden I... Uh, I'm training at a better place or I have uh, actually somebody coach me on technique or I've been sleeping, you know, or then you have somebody think, oh, this, pro- this program isn't working for me. But like anything significant happen in your life? Yeah, I got divorced or, you know, and you're like, okay, it's probably not the training program as much as it's major life changes. So I always think that's a challenge with research is looking at other independent variables that will necessarily impact your, uh, you know, your study or what you're necessarily trying to get out. So um, what's next? I'm sure you got, you know, something big on the horizon. I mean, uh, like you said, you're going to um, hopefully, you know, receive your doctorate here and you said the next couple months. Yep. So what's on the horizon? What's next? Good question. <laughs> to be you're like, determined. I, you're like, I have no idea. I'm just doing the sleep thing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, no, we have Perfect. a lot of, uh, we have a couple interesting studies um, that hopefully we'll, we'll get out there pretty soon. I just wrapped up a large study um, with Major League Baseball uh, players uh, looking at a short sleep intervention during spring training. So that was very fascinating and hopefully you can share some of that down the road. Um, from an application standpoint, you know, I think it's a really exciting time for sports where uh, there are more aware of the importance of sleep and recovery. I can tell you five, 10 years ago, none of these major league teams cared at all about this. I was knocking on doors trying to, trying to say, you know, how much that we do recognize we can help athletes um, in terms of their recovery and their travel. And, and now I think it's this um, emerging area that teams are much more keen on. And I think it'll be an exciting time as technology is also advancing our ability to be able to, you know, monitor this longitudinally. And I think, you know, down the road, my hope is that sleep science, sleep is going to have a more uh, permanent um you know, role in, in overall sports performance. Um, and it won't be th- something that's just the exception that it's going to hopefully have some permanency um, because it, it is critical that it's integrated into an overall athlete's training. I did have one last question um, and seeing if you've seen any of this in your experience, but John, you played with, was it Shields or Rofe that would take naps? Uh, it was Will Shields. So uh, explain to Sherry the. Oh, yeah. So um, I played five years in Philadelphia and then got traded to the Kansas City Chiefs. And um, I was you know, pretty excited because the Chiefs, uh, you know, at the time probably had the best offensive line in the history of pro football. Um, had a guy named Will Shields who I played with who was, uh, you know, played 14 years. Uh, I think never missed a game in those 14 years. Had like something like 200 and you know 90 some crazy uh consecutive starts um and you know i'd always been like uh you know i guess you could say like you know what i call it like getting my mind right where i'd come in i'd you know put on some headphones i i had some you know preset i'd, I'd worked with a um uh a guy named kevin elko who was a sports psychologist and and some guys uh early in my eagles career and we assessed that like uh for certain people that music is uh, very powerful in terms of an emotional deal and for a connection. And so, you know, as talking with them, I 
I drew great parallels between uh, emotion and music. And they were like, you know, let's find a, a song and kind of a ritual for you that you can kind of put into effect that allows you to get into what they called, you know, a performance-based zone. So I had this whole little kind of, you know, uh, almost like a ritual that I would do where I would, you know, come in, I'd put the headphones on and like, you know, kind of, you know, start kind of doing some meditation and, and visualization on not only technique, but some things and uh, something I developed over the years. And I would tend to get, you know, pretty wound up. And uh, I always had this idea that, you know, things are always calmest right before the storm, right? Then the storm's about to happen. And uh, I look over and the very first game I got to the Kansas City Chiefs, I'm in this situation and I'm, I can see like my foot's tapping and I'm starting to get wound up. And I look over and uh, Will Shields is laying on his back snoring, sound asleep. And I'm like, completely fucked me up. And I'm like, this motherfucker's sleeping. And I'm like, no, he's got to be fucking with people. Like, he's got to be messing. And sure enough, uh, all of a sudden, they like knocked on the door. Let's go. And, uh, you know, you know, everybody up at the front, we're going out. And somebody went over and tapped him and said, hey, Will, um, we're getting ready to go out. And he kind of like got up and kind of shook his head and said, okay, let's go out. And he put on his helmet. And we went running out there. And he proceeded to lay an ass whooping for the next three hours on this dude. He completely threw me out of my loop. I was like, this is unbelievable. And, um, you know, I, and I remember being like, what's up with the sleeping? And he's like, Oh, um, you know, I just was kind of a little bit tired. I, you know, know I needed to get a little bit more sleep and, um, you know, just tend to relax a little bit. It's, it's just, you know, so just another day at work. And I'm like, this fucking dude, I'm over here, like, you know, trying not to chew glass and put my head through a wall. And this guy's sound asleep. And I realized like that level of confidence and ability and the ability to stay calm under stress and fire. I mean, he was, you know, that's why he was one of the, you know, first ballot, first ballot hall of fame and considered probably the best to ever do his job in the NFL. And I was very fortunate to play next to him for a long time. So, uh, I got to see a little bit of that. And, uh, uh, I thought I had it figured out until I saw that dude sleeping. So that was <laughs> always okay. pretty good. So but the real I, question is, did you adopt that pre-game power nap then? No, I did not. Uh, I had uh, uh, literally like put together this whole strategy and this little bit of like this kind of ritual I had, and it allowed me to you know play ten years and start a hundred plus career games, and I, I can you know probably do the job as uh, as well as anybody I, w I would like to say. Um, interesting thing is I told that story to, uh, I, I did a, a speaking engagement for the guys at Naval Special Warfare, uh, for the SEALs. And I told that story and these guys are pretty high level operators. And, um, one of the guys came over after and he's like, you know, uh, I've worked with guys, similar deal. Like we know we're basically going out on an op and, you know, you look over and some guys are, you know, in the hell, you know, in the helo, like getting wound up, like we're ready to go do this. And you look over and there'll always be one dude just sound asleep totally you know and it's usually that guy is the like the you know stone face killer like the the most badass of the dudes is the guys that are asleep and um and so I've, I've heard that story in other settings the guys like that and so uh sadly i was not the guy that could sleep i needed like about 30 minutes to like work myself up into this like uh what i you know almost like this like mental uh ball of energy to go out and try to smash my forehead through somebody dude for three hours but man those guys could do it off a, off a nap so if i had known about the caffeine nap i probably could have done it but um at the time i didn't drink caffeine uh i didn't drink coffee until i had kids and now <laughs> i uh yeah i remember being like and now i, I can't imagine not drinking coffee people are like have you ever thought about giving up coffee i'm like you could take alcohol i would gladly never drink again just never take the coffee away 
So, so is that is that an anomaly or is that normal? Kind of the high level napping in your experience, Sherry. Any any at all? Sorry, the the the, the pregame napping. Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, is 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 that pretty common amongst like really high level athletes? That ability to stay calm in terms of like you know. Uh, you know, that type of stressful situation to be able to, you know, and the only, you know, I always thought, you know, things are calmest before the storm and that dude was calm. <laughs> no, I've seen that actually across different sports. There's definitely some athletes where we'll strategically schedule a power nap before they're going to play. Um, I do leave about a 30 minute window for them to still kind of get, you know, locked in and ready after the power nap, but we're timing it strategically. So that'll give them that little bit of that boost and alertness for a couple hours leading into the game. Um, but then there's also athletes too that, um, you know, anecdotally have shared with me, like they, they know that they can be at their best and then are most relaxed, even like after they've gone out and like thrown like, you know, the bullpen and, and warmed up during BP. Um, and then are able to still take that nap and they feel like that helps them get into like their zone and get locked in and ready to go for the game. So I've seen that too in, in other sports, but it sounds like it's also similar in different contexts that you've seen as well. Yeah, no, the um, uh, part of the way that I, I ended up, uh, the guy I referenced before that Dr. Jin, the way I got contacted by him is he was doing a research study on um, for the DOD on being able to assess, uh, you know, individuals, uh, based on their uh, ability to enter what he called the zone, you know, and like that kind of where everything is kind of goes away. And um, the analogy, whenever somebody asked me about it is, um, you know, I played, you know, football a long time and I never once heard the crowd. So I never ever heard the crowd noise. Um, it, everything was completely silent to me and majority of every play seemed like it was happening in slow motion to the point where I felt like I was in a movie that was moving really slow and the ball would snap and I would see everything in slow motion and I could notice very small things. And when I went to do his study, they had us hooked up to a bunch of electrodes, um, you know, and we're doing some brain mapping stuff. And he was like, Hey, I want you to, you know, do a little, or whatever your ritual is. And he's like, you know, when I talk to professional athletes, like that ability to get into that zone that you need to maximize your performance. And as soon as he said it, I was like, no problem. And um, kind of went through whatever my ritual was to get there. And, uh, you know, he was, it was pretty cool. We went back and we looked at the brain. He's like, okay, this is where you came in and this is where you dropped in. And he goes, you know, to see people change their brains or mm -hmm. change the, uh, um, um, you know, the uh, impulses within the brain. He goes, is, is pretty universal for guys that play at a high level and not everybody has the ability to do that. So he's like, you know, whatever allows you to do it. And, and he's like, for you is probably that, you know, whatever your ritual that you guys developed years ago. And he goes for other people it could be sleep. It could be other people need caffeine. And you know, there's, there's ways that people can use it with, uh, you know, with different stimulants or, or whatever it is. And he's like, whatever allows you to get to that position where you're able to perform at a higher level. And, you know, it's like, um, uh, you know, when, and, and I've, I've had like um, tons of people ask me about it. And the only way I can describe it is uh, a situation or kind of a performance mindset that you can get into where you're able to do things that you normally would not be able to do. So I, I remember watching myself on film and being like, there's no way if I wasn't out of that situation, I would one be able to move that fast and be able to do the things I was able to do. So, and um, that seems universal to people. So, um, and the interesting part is when, when I asked Dr. Genesis common, he said, you know, it's common for professional athletes and people that perform at high levels. 
So I always wonder if it's something that can be learned over time or if it's something just innate that you're able to do, which allows you to go do it. So it's kind of that chicken or egg thing. So very fascinating. Yeah. All fascinating today. No, this is awesome. Yeah. So, so Sherry, if people want to get in touch, um, do you have any speaking engagement coming up? What's the best route for them to take to learn more about what you're doing? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, Sherry underscore ma. Um, that's probably the best way to get in touch. Or you can email me, Sherry ma at stanfordalumni.org. Um, and we can go from there. I'll keep you posted. Killer. Excellent. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll continue to follow you. And then if we got any more questions, we know how to get in touch. So Sherry, thank you very much for make, making the time for us. I know this was a... Uh, I know you're real busy. Yeah, yeah, very, very busy. So we, we appreciate it on our end. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. All righty. And Sherry, well, we are out. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Do not sleep on the importance of sleep. God, I'm so sorry for that. To hear more on Sherry's research, follow her on Twitter at Sherry Ma, that's C-H-E-R-I underscore M-A-H. She is a busy lady, but if the questions just can't wait, try emailing her at Sherry Ma at stanfordalumni.org. Sweet dreams. And until next time. <laughs>